Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Being no doubt, my next guest is an incredible leader and has demonstrated that regardless of gender and ethnicity, you can achieve incredible success in the police service. She is a recipient of not only the Queen's Police Medal, but the Iraq Campaign Medal and was the first female police officer deployed to Iraq to be awarded the Civilian Outstanding Bravery Medal by the United States of America. From Northumbria Police as a young female constable from an ethnic background to the Assistant Chief Constable of Lincolnshire Police. Karen Wilson's career, over 30 years of service both home and abroad in Iraq, saw her develop into one of our finest female leaders of the North. Her journey, like many other female police officers of her generation, wasn't all plain sailing. And in this episode, Karen and I sit down and explore these challenges the incredible highs, some of the lows, and the challenge of leading a force where those she was leading challenged her decisions based not only on her gender, but her ethnicity. Karen has paved the way for future female leaders. She is a passionate believer and champion of equality, and I believe one day we'll see her in uniform again. She has so much more to give. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve.
Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. Once again, it's another week and another incredible guest. And as I've said, Series 1 was all about really bringing home the fact that, you know, policing is, is, is ordinary members of the public doing an extraordinary job in the fact they choose the vocation of policing, which is one which is incredibly challenging and, and offers uh, a great deal of diversity and opportunity in a career which, which can take people anywhere. The sky really is in the, the limit. But Series 2, importantly, I've said from the outset, is about breaking down barriers. It's about having courageous conversations and, and really the opportunity to celebrate that regardless of gender, ethnicity or sexuality, you know, anything can be achieved in policing. And my next guest sent me across her CV and her work profile. And I must admit, I was just in awe of it. It's incredible, the stuff that she has achieved throughout her 30 years in policing. And I'm absolutely honoured her for her to join me on the show this morning. Karen Wilson, recipient of the QPM. Welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? Good morning, Ollie. I'm very well, thank you. So my first question, like every good detective, we like to go right back to the start of somebody's career. And my first question has got to be, why policing? Oh, um, well, I left school at 16 with no particular qualifications whatsoever and wanted to be a fashion designer. So that was my passion. I was very creative as a child Um, and so worked in the fashion industry for about seven years. And I loved that and I thrived in that. Um, But it didn't give me a sense of purpose. It didn't give me a sense of um, like bettering the communities that I grew up in and the communities that I was involved in, in um, the retail and wholesale sector. It was all about profit margins. Um, And I wanted to do something much more socially responsible, whether it was teaching or policing. um, They were the sort of areas I was exploring. And two things, two or three things drew me to policing. So in 1992, you didn't need any qualifications to get into policing. Um, Where teaching, you had to go to university. And I'm not academic. I'm not particularly um, bright in that way. I had no qualifications. So all of that was quite daunting. Plus, you would need to survive on some sort of income. Where policing trained you and paid you while you were training. So that was a huge tick for me. Um, And the second thing is I had some experience locally in one of the shops I was managing um, of policing where the um, officers came in and said they wanted to do a stakeout because they had a tip off that the shop was going to get ram raided. And that all sounded hugely exciting for a 20 something year old. Um, (laughs) And then the next thing I was the uh, key witness in a post office robbery where I helped apprehend two of the suspects who were running out with um, with their loot um, and had to go to Crown Court and and be on an ID parade and pick them out, etc. And all of that just sounded really fantastically fascinating and exciting and um, something I really wanted to get involved in and do good at the same time. So I didn't have any, I didn't have any family, sorry, I didn't have any family background in in policing whatsoever. So 1992, December, I walked through the gates of the training college, you'll have to fill us in on where that was, but 
how intimidating or exciting or what were the emotions of, of, of pursuing this vocation were going through your head when the first day came around? Um, very, very intimidated. It was Ponteland in Newcastle, so it was Northumbria Police. Um, I joined in 1992. And I, I was 25, I'd just turned 25 then, so it was quite... Um, although I was mature and had worked in industry since I was 16, um, I still felt like a new kid on the block, not knowing what to expect and feeling very much like the imposter that at any second now I was going to get found out and thrown out the doors. <laughs> um, so it was like, what are you doing here? You've got no qualifications. You've got no right to be here. Um, we know your background. We know where you come from. And all of that played very much at the forefront of my mind. But um, I'm quite stubborn. I just had to suck it up and like, work my way through it and not give off any vibes that I was scared but I was absolutely scared to death <laughs> do you know one of the questions I ask a lot of my guests when they come on is that when we choose to pursue this career in policing some of us have got family backgrounds of policing some of us don't but either way sometimes it can start it can challenge friendships and family network networks in terms of people worried about what does this mean for our friendship <laughs> you know am i going to be in trouble you're going to be watching me in the pub if i have one too many beers how was that for you when you broke the news to friends and family that suddenly you'd found something that actually interested you but involved often a vocation which can challenge people as to kind of their thoughts and feelings about its presence um I didn't tell my family until I'd actually got the the offer. Um, my my boyfriend, my partner at the time, he obviously knew, and a couple of my very close friends, but the majority of people didn't know what I was doing um, because I knew that they would have a negative impact, um, a negative view of what that would be. Um, some of my uncles um, and cousins, I'm from a, a large extended family, um, were on the wrong side of the law. So I had to make those declarations when I joined as well because that was, I thought I wouldn't get through vetting because of those connections, um, which I did. But some of those individuals wanted nothing to do with me. And to be honest, it, that really didn't bother me because of what they were doing and what the activities they were involved in. I didn't want anything to do with them either. So it made it quite easy for me to distance myself from family members even though they were extended family members that I wanted nothing to do with um so initially it was all of the excitement of of joining I think later down the line some of those family connections um come back to haunt you a little bit and life's not black and white um and I remember one day I probably had about a year service in my brother was um in the police cells had been arrested for an outstanding warrant of 30 pound um and I paid that and I never spoke to him again for about another five years um I wanted a, a real clear distance between what potential impact 
those connections with my family would have on my career. I did not want to grow up and be in the environment that I'd grown up in. So I needed to to separate myself. Um, and then years later down the line, when you understand the, the difficulties that some people are in, you understand how people can get sucked into things. Um, I'm much more relaxed and open about that. But for for years, I could never even like mention where I'd come from and where my family came from. And where do you, what was what was worrying you about that? Where do you where where do your family come from? What was the biggest worry that you had in that regard? Um, that I would be judged. Um, that I would be judged because of their um history of the activities that they got involved in. Um, that I wouldn't be trusted. That my vetting would be revoked. That my career would be lost. Um, and therefore that the ambition that I had to get myself out of the poverty in the um the environment that I grew up in would not be realised. Um so I I just saw my future as being in policing and that this was potentially something that was going to jeopardise that by being as open. Um I was open on my vetting but not with my colleagues. I thought they would judge me as to um some of the individuals I'd grown up with. How did you find, you know, the vocation of policing at training colleges is an incredibly complex one in terms of the policy and procedure and the legislation that we often have to be able to recall verbatim to ensure that we understand what's expected of us when we hit the road and there's a multitude of different tasks that one can undertake in any one 24-hour, 8-hour period shift. How did you find both the academic side of the training as long as, as well as the physical side of the training? Um, it came to me quite easily, actually which surprised me having left school without any um, particular qualifications. But um, it gave me a sense of, actually, I'm not really thick Um, just because I didn't have those (laughs) qualifications and the opportunities to to go to college or university. Um, And it gave me a sense of one day I do want to do um, some further study. And and I did, um, in 2010, I did a master's in... um, in business administration and again that was to prove to myself that um, I could achieve academic qualifications and um, hold my own in a room full of um, graduates so it it wasn't difficult Um, I'm quite a pragmatic person and I'll just tackle a problem in the way it needs to be tackled to get the best result and that included the academic um, work as well and the physical work, I'd never been involved in sports clubs or anything like that growing up. Um, so I did have to work hard at the physical side um, and do exercise for the very first time in my life. Um, but I found that I quite enjoyed it. What was, you know, we talk about policing has come on an awful lot in the last 20, 30 years in terms of diversity and female representation in policing importantly but 30 years ago I would imagine it would would have been quite a a different place to be in terms of the training and the challenges and the way women were perceived in law enforcement did you experience that early on in your training to recognize that there was you were the minority in terms of the female representation within the police training college that you had attended um yes very much so so the first eight years of my service 
I was the only um, female ethnic minority officer in policing. Um, and so it, it was quite a lonely place in terms of not always understanding the dynamics of some of the the subtle racism that you experience and who you could turn to and who you could talk to about what you were experiencing. Um, so th that was fairly lonely and quite isolating. Um, but it just made me tougher. I just had to suck it up because I wasn't going to let things like that beat me. I'd grown up in um, areas where racism was quite rife. So this was not any different to that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't allow it to detract from what I wanted to do in policing. Um, a lot of the time in the early days, I would just brush it off um, as a joke, as banter, etc. And I wouldn't really call it out. I would ignore it. Um, but certainly once I became a sergeant with eight years service, I knew I had more of a responsibility um, to actually challenge that. But I didn't have a place to challenge that when I was a PC. Um, so after that, I became a, a lot more vocal at calling things out, especially if I saw it in um, the behaviours against other people, not necessarily against myself, but certainly against other people. When you graduated, it must have been an incredibly proud day to be issued with your warrant card and for your family to attend and to see you going through that process and to have been so successful. Was it a day that you look back on fondly? Yes, absolutely. Um, certainly on my, I, d I dug some photos out for my 30 year um, last day, put that out on social mm -hmm. media, because I think I still look exactly the same as I did when I was 25, 26. Obviously, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Only on the inside of my head. Um, and this baby faced, big smiley picture. And it was an incredibly um, moving and powerful day to, to graduate with you um, from training college and then go out on the beat and everybody looking at you in uniform. And you just think, mm. oh, my God, they all know. They all know I'm, I'm fresh out of the box, as it were. Um, but no, nobody was really looking at you. It was just that self-consciousness yourself. The In the first couple of years, we, we experienced an awful lot in terms of the training and often pushed forward for some of the most challenging jobs that come out. You know, the, the sudden and unexpected road trauma, uh, people in you know, mental health incidents, domestic violence. There's an array of different opportunities for police to go and, and intervene and to make people's lives better or to try and get to the bottom of something which has occurred. Was there any particular moment in the first couple of years when you're on the road in general duties policing that you realised that this job was going to offer you challenges both emotionally and physically with some of the tasks that you're asked to, to, to oversee and, and to try and resolve? Yeah, I think when I first joined we were very target driven um mm. it was all about convictions and the um the numbers of arrests and the numbers of charges that you got and i remember going to this um house around about christmas time where they'd reported that their rented tv had been stolen in a burglary um this couple and they had three kids and they had absolutely nothing in the house it was it was very clean very well um maintained but they had hardly any possessions um yeah and i i was still in my probation so maybe a, a year in 
and I remember I was always very, very inquisitive. Um, I was always a very good detective and I knew that something was wrong. Um, the, the way the break-in had happened, the, the shards of wood chips were on the outside of the door instead of the inside of the door, that sort of thing. So I had a look around the house and I found this TV in, wrapped up in a, in a duvet in the bottom of a wardrobe and this couple could not afford to keep paying the rental for the TV uh, but they wanted the TV for their children over the Christmas period um, and I knew I had to arrest them that was my job <laughs> and it broke my heart that they were so poor um, yeah and so it would still get me emotional now thinking about I've got a job to do but how can I help them how can I help this be different? Because this is not making people's lives better. It's making criminals out of people who are in really desperate situations. Yeah. So I've really campaigned for things like restorative justice, um, for doing things in a different way where we don't have to criminalise things. We don't criminalise children for stealing bottles of milk off doorsteps anymore. Um, and we did all of that when I first joined, and that was always really difficult to, to help manage. So I always try to give people a different pathway so they can get support and can get help from elsewhere rather than just being chucked into a system that didn't care. You, you spoke about, just briefly before, about the challenges of your ethnicity as well as being a female in a, in a predominantly male-dominated policing environment in the early part of your career. When you're managing those challenges, as well as the challenges of learning such a complex and challenging vocation, which, you know, in terms of processing some of the stuff you witness, who is your greatest support network during those early years of being able to handle the emotions, the trials and tribulations of the first couple of years of policing? Um, I think it was my, um, my best friend at the time who was my greatest supporter. She was um, somebody I'd, I'd... It was my um, ex-partner's sister. Um, and she was always had my back. And she always supported mm. me and pushed me um, to do better. Because we'd, we'd had such a close friendship. Um, and even the negativity that I got from family and mm. from... When I split up from my brother, she still stuck by me and, and, and stayed with me throughout. And she was my greatest hero and st and still is. Um, sadly, we're, we're not in touch as much as we, um, we used to be. But having... It was people outside of policing that gave me the greatest support to actually yeah. survive a, a very difficult mm. um, first few years of my career. And th throughout all the all my career, the bumps in the road, I would say my girlfriends outside of policing are probably my biggest um, sources of support. Was there a period in those first few years, because you moved quickly, um, relatively quickly, into sort of more investigative work, you know, the... The, the sort of the classic CID roles and 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 drug squads. What was the catalyst for wanting to be part of the more in-depth investigative work and to step away from the more proactive uniform work? Um, I think it was the opportunity to actually see investigations through. 
Um, in the mm. in the uniform world, I would grab hold of an investigation and then have to hand it over. Um, and I'm like, I had a bit between my teeth, and I wanted to to <laughs> deal with it all the way through. Do the in- interviews, gather the evidence, present the case file to court. Um, and I learned I was very good with it, um, and I had a massive amount of um, patience for attention to detail. And there was also um, the occasions of um, the pressure of the amount of jobs you had, not giving victims the amount of time that they needed because you were in uniform and you're going from one job to another. Um, And that was the same as it is today, as it was 30 years ago. Um, And so having that time to spend a little bit more time with victims as well, um, really pushed me towards the investigative side of things um, and you were a little bit more your own boss you could manage your own workload and your investigative um, lines of inquiry a lot more than you could as a as a uniform PC let's talk about the drug squad in Middlesbrough between 98 and 2000 for those of our listeners and we've got quite a number that live outside the UK if you can give us a bit of an insight as to Middlesbrough's demographic, the challenges that it faces as its own community, and your role in the drug squad. Yeah, Middlesbrough is one of the um, um, biggest areas of deprivation, um, very multicultural in the northeast of um, of the UK, um, just not far down from Scotland. Um, if for uh, anybody who's outside of the UK on the northeast coast. Um, but a huge amount of mixed diversity in there. And we had, 20, 25 years ago, we had major drug problems. We had um, organised criminality. We had huge amount of prostitution, lots of safeguarding issues, um, county lines before county lines were even recognised as a thing mm. um, coming in and really creating merry hell for our communities and it was a brand new squad the drug squad that was set up and i applied for that but i'd um prior to applying for the drug squad before it was set up i was a te- what they called a test purchase officer so it was the the first rung of the ladder of being an undercover officer um and i'd um young skinny um dark-skinned, did not look like a a police officer. So they used me quite a bit um, as an undercover officer in drugs um, circles. And I really got a taste for the type of um, individuals who you'd want to target, not the drug users, but the ones who were making the money, the thousands and thousands. Um, And so those are the two things which drove me into the drug squad and running your own investigations and I got a huge amount of um, satisfaction from that and took out some pretty big gangs really and got some good jail sentences for them. So you must have this, you must have developed this incredible skill of resilience and because it's it's no small feat even being a test purchase officer in terms of going into I suppose if we describe it, the lion's den in terms of, you know, getting quite close to acts of criminality and 
and, and being close to the you know the dangerous parts of these people aren't the most pleasant people to deal with how did you you know there must was there a a level of fear or trepidation going into that role or were you more excitement and the adrenaline takes over um i think it's probably a mixture of both um yeah. having that fear but also knowing what the end result is going to be what you're mm. trying to achieve so having that at the forefront of your mind about what you're trying to do and um taking these gangs and taking these drugs off the street and this was the best way to do it to get the the best outcomes you could execute a warrant but you weren't really going to put people away um you weren't going to stop the drug dealing by doing that um and i've got a bit of the gift of the gab um <laughs> i can think on my feet and i'm quite um quite gobby when i need to be so i could um i could manage the challenges that came my way um in in those days and the confidence of the team around you so um we didn't have so much technical support as um as we do now if if we were putting people out there but the confidence of the team knowing that my safety team were nearby they were keeping an eye on me mm. um we practice and practice and practice um we know what the trigger points were the the rescue signals um and having a huge amount of confidence in them um and one person in particular the sergeant who probably about 7 or 8 years later I put forward for an MBE which he got and um wow yeah so um i was i was really pleased with that to to make sure he got honors um for people who don't normally come to light in policing they're not the ones mm. who are on the front page of tackling a robbery or whatever um they're the ones who are behind the scenes making sure that everything works well um and he was an incredible incredible individual who um who gave me a huge amount of confidence in doing what i was doing what were the challenges like because obviously diversity is a big part of the conversation that we want to be having in this series so what were the challenges like for you as a as a young woman in 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 a detective's arena did you how long did it take before you felt you were part of the team was it immediately from the start that you were accepted and people recognized that you had the gift of the gab that you were a good investigator that you were prepared to get your hands dirty and get stuck into the real decent investigations was that an immediate thing or did it take time i don't think it ever really came to be wow. honest mm. as a as certainly as a dc i don't think it ever really came um and i was in cid with drug squad and Drug squad, we were a very small, tight-knit team, so it was a little bit better there. But certainly in the mainstream CID, um, it was always quite a lonely place um, mm. because I didn't go out drinking and socialising with all of the lads and um, I didn't succumb to their advances. Um, so it was a little bit like, oh, she's very aloof and leave her alone sort of thing so I'd, i don't think i ever really um fit the mold for the cid in middlesbrough in those days but that's quite uncomfortable in terms of saying you resisted their advances is that is, is that a regular issue that you're having to contend with is that it, it is um right from day one of joining the place and um 
not that I was anything special, but I think most policewomen who joined 30 years ago, um, wi within weeks, they were having advances made. Um, and that was just a regular thing. And, and we'd, we'd chat to each other and we'd know who were the main predators as it were. Mm. And so mm. all of the stuff that comes out now about David Carrick and all of the um, Wayne Cousins, etc., that type of behaviour doesn't really surprise a lot of us because there was a lot of um, your fair game. You've joined the police um, and you always knew you'd have your sixth sense, the hairs going up on the back of your head um, as to who you did not want to share a car with on a night shift. Um, not that there was anything that actually did happen, but there was the innuendos and the, the sleaziness of it all. Um, that was a very regular place 30 years ago. Were some of these issues part of the driving factor for you to pursue promotion, to implement and to oversee change? I think so. Um, I, I passed my sergeant's exam um, straight out out of probation so I had two and a half years of servicing um, and I knew I wanted to be um, a, a supervisor or a manager of some description some sort of leader I had done that in my previous career but I wanted to be really good at it so um, I didn't go for promotion till I had eight years servicing because I wanted to try lots of different things first and be a good supervisor just as opposed to being a quick promoted supervisor and I wanted the experience of how things worked so that if I was challenging things and wanting to make changes I had that depth around yeah. me to to give a really good solid argument as to why things should change um, and I remember the very first thing I changed um, and challenged as a sergeant fairly newly promoted sergeant was the um, selection criteria to be a hostage negotiator so at that time you had to be an inspector well I was a sergeant and I wanted to be a hostage negotiator and I could not see the reason why it needed to be another rank <laughs> so I gathered all of the evidence from up and down the country as to um, what other forces were doing um, and put a, quite a detailed proposal together um, and sent it through to the chief officer team and in those days there was no google there was no easy access to um, to information elsewhere. And in no way on God's earth did you ever approach the chief officers. Um, but mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I'll, <laughs> I'll get turned down. Um, so I did get, I did get um, to change the policy and practice on that. And I got through the next selection criteria as a hostage negotiator, which has been one of the greatest joys of my whole career. But there's... An incredible example of making significant change to allow those that follow you a better opportunity at jobs which they ordinarily would never have had the opportunity. There must be incredibly proud moments that you look back on to think that you've made such a difference just in that one small piece of the pie. I think so. I think it's um, knowing that this this is not just about me. This is about making that difference mm. that other people can apply for. And also helping others think that if they see something that needs to be changed, that they can. Yeah. 
that they can do it. Some, you just need to have a, a focus on what to do and how to do it. But just because the rules are there, and I, and I say this in lots of leadership stuff, um, break the rules, but then remake the rules. So I'm not a complete maverick of just breaking all of the rules. You need to remake them mm. in a model that will work for, for today's um, society and, and the people that we serve now. So your first promotion to the rank of sergeant, custody and response in Cleveland Police. Um, what, are the, what are the challenges and the sense of responsibility when you're looking after men and women in a response capacity and within the custody suites? Obviously a great area of responsibility in looking after the people that are brought into the care of police. Um, for yourself, what were those challenges and responsibilities like in terms of how did you cope with them? Um, it's quite daunting when you go into to be a custody sergeant and I, I remember talking to people who've um, just recently been promoted and given that role and people don't want to do it. <laughs> um, for for whatever reason, they don't want to take on that responsibility because they, they hear all the horror stories about mm. what will happen if there's, a, for instance, an adverse incident or a death in custody. Um, but actually, you've got the opportunity to make sure that they are well looked after. Mm. You can influence um, the the officers to get on with their job better. You can give them support and guidance about how they can do things differently. You, or all of your experience comes to the fore without taking on the responsibility of leading them themselves. Um, so quite often, they bring. Um, prisoners in and want to, to bail them straight away and I'm like no you've got tons of time on the clock get out there mm. make your inquiries and then come back um, and just giving them really good practices about how they can investigate in a much more efficient and effective way so that was massively satisfying um, making sure that people who were in custody the, the detainees had what they needed and so if there was pathways and support that you could give them that you that you did make sure that they were signposted to that and especially young people especially um, juveniles because we had them in a lot um, when I was a custody sergeant making sure that we we got social services we got the parents mm. um, and they were given the best support that they could but some of the biggest challenges I had were um, the the staff I worked with um, I had one particular individual who was a detention officer who supported me, civilian detention officer, um, and he was drinking on duty. Um, so he used to wow. drive in on his motorbike and he used to have uh, um, hip flasks stuck to the sides of his um, the panniers on the motorbike and I had to breathalyse him two o'clock in the morning one night on a night shift and deal with that. So dealing with the um, poor behaviours, poor attitudes of officers and cops and challenging that um, is quite a lonely place, but it's the right thing to do. Mm. Um, so I wasn't going to let that go. <laughs> and were you, when, when you are starting to challenge those poor behaviours, are you being supported from above? Not always. Um um, not always. It was quite often as a supervisor, other people would say to you, that person's not going to cut it as an officer. Um, and 
I remember taking on a, a really difficult probationer onto my shift who'd who'd not passed his um, grade on another shift, um, but they didn't have any real support there. So I gave him a huge mm. amount of support um, and he still wasn't making the grade. So I did everything we needed to do to say he needed um, to find a different career elsewhere and put a report into the the um, district commander. And the district commander just poo-pooed it, dismissed it and allowed him to stay. Five years later, um, he was dismissed after committing some serious offences of perjury, oh, of losing prisoners, etc. And these were all writing on the wall that we had right from the early days. But if you don't mm. support your sergeants and inspectors who are challenging the poor behaviours, then um, the senior officers need to get a grip of that and stop being so scared of of actually challenging people because you're just going to make it worse later down the line. Because that's where, you know, I had a bit of a chat last night with a couple of former colleagues and that's the greatest chat. You know, we talk about culture and we talk about leadership, we talk about discipline, we talk about expectations of officers and, and, and where we expect them to, what we expect them to do and not to do. And, and and those are very much set down by the sergeants and inspectors that really kind of lay that tone of this is what I expect, this is what I want you to do and this is how I want you to carry it out. And if they don't, if people, if, if, if people can't do that, then obviously it's important that we empower our our sergeants and our inspectors to, to be able to police effectively those amongst them and then get the support from those above them to, to help manage those people either to a path of the organisation where they can be successful or if they can't be to manage them out of the organisation where they can find a career which is more suited to them because policing is a very complex arena to be in and it's one that we've got to get right and, and the public expects us to get right all the time. Yeah, completely agree with that. Um, apologies, the phone's ringing in the background. <laughs> That's right. um, um, I, I agree, but we need our senior leaders to stop thinking about themselves and the difficulty that they might have in um, addressing some of this because they've got to give the backing to the the first and second line supervisors to be able to have the confidence to deal with it. Um, and not just be scared of their own shadows and their own careers. And that's what I found a lot of throughout my, my service, is that some senior officers um, are not as focused on supporting first and second line managers as they should be. Um, mm. And they, they just don't have the gumption sometimes to actually get a grip. Within a few years of taking up your position as sergeant, you then became the staff officer to the deputy chief constable. Is that correct? Yes. And what's that position like? You're now seeing firsthand the organisation effectively being run from the top. You're seeing what is the, for one of a better description, the political representative of the police overseeing the policy implementing policy and change and guiding the police service you know uh, how was that exposure to suddenly see from an operational perspective the very pointy end of the police services management i think i always wanted to be a staff officer um 
once I became a sergeant because I wanted to understand how the home office and chief officers actually thought mm. and how what they were doing and saying translated into the operational delivery mm. for the public yeah. and how the cogs in the wheel turn round, how the rest of the organisation works. So that was that was always an ambition to be in there, um, to understand that. And that gave me a, a great insight into the effectiveness or not of the Home Office. <laughs> um, and not to be scared of these um, these senior officers, the institutions, etc., because they, they didn't have any particular magic or sparkle up there. Um, and if you came back with a really, like, really pragmatic, this is not going to work because X, Y, Z... Or have you thought about including X, Y, Z into yeah. your policing plan, for instance? Um, they just didn't. But very much policy makers were very theoretical. And what I learned from that was about the stuff that comes out nationally. You can challenge, but you also mm. you need to understand what the ambition is and then help translate that into something which is really practical. Um, but it's your job as a, as a certainly first and second line manager to be able to try and understand that to translate it, um, mm. because you you've you've got to you've got to achieve those ambitions because that's where your political masters are going to put the money in knife crime, in antisocial behaviour, etc. You can't just ignore it. Um, but you do need to make it work for you and make it work for your community that you're policing. So were there, were there ever occasions where you're sitting in the back of the car or you're, you know, planning a meeting and you've got the chief constable asking you for your advice as the staff officer? What do you think, Karen? How do you think this is going to affect staff on the ground operation? You've just recently come from, you know, response and custody. Kind of how can we implement this successfully? Yes, um, and the certainly the the deputy who I worked for, um, Ron Hogg, who's who's now passed sadly, um, he he was brilliant at that. He always um, spoke to me in a very um, supportive way about how can we do things differently, how is this going to work on the ground, mm. and I remember there's um, a very good friend of mine who is. Um, at that time was the chief constable staff officer now was the deputies um the the force was doing a, a big huge change program um changing the operating model but also going to have a move around of um senior officers um superintendents chief superintendents and between the pair of us we're both sergeants we put the plan together and presented it to the chief and the deputy um, with the the pros and cons and the skills and the um, benefits of the individuals and how they would work together as a team, where they'd be best suited, etc. Um, and I think all but one of our proposals was accepted. So wow. that was it. That was a huge. Um, yeah, massive. A, a, a huge amount of kudos for what we mm. were doing, but obviously we couldn't say 
that we'd put this proposal together because chief superintendents, knowing that the sergeants <laughs> had potentially moved them from their post, <laughs> would not have gone down well. <laughs> Let's... Um... And then this jump to inspector and detective inspector, still in Cleveland Police. You know, at that point then, you had exposure to, you know, the senior executive um, in the detective chief constable role, uh, sorry, the deputy chief constable role. You then, you passed your inspector's exam relatively quickly. Did you find that process to get to promotion um, relatively straightforward? Were there any challenges that you were faced with that you had to overcome? Um, no, not really. I um, passed my exams, went for my interview. Um, I think it was the second time I went for an inspector's board that I, I passed. Um, I'm always better the second time round. I like <laughs> to warm up on the first time of, of going for anything. Um, so I passed my inspector's board the second time round, got a posting um, and loved being an inspector. Absolutely loved it. Um, but I did want to go back into CID um, and that's where I hit the brick walls. That's where the challenges came because, mm. as I said earlier, um, I wasn't a typical detective. Um, I, I wasn't in the clique, as it were. And so I went for three. Um, after about four years in uniform, I went for three different detective inspector roles and never got them. Um, and challenge the detective chief superintendent as to the the very f last one that I went for which was to be the DI in Middlesbrough and I was the only applicant um, who was a substantive inspector at that time and at that time substantives got the first pick of any jobs that came through and if there were if they weren't filled somebody who was board passed to be an inspector could be posted into it on promotion. And yeah. I'd seen a copy of the organisational structure with the DI for Middlesbrough penciled in, who was board passed but not um, able to apply for the job, who was the best friend of the detective chief superintendent. So he was going to get it. Mm. Um, and I'd seen that before I even went in for my interview. Um, and I did a great interview, um, but the feedback was that I didn't have the depth of experience. So that was a, I answered all the questions, but there was no depth there that he wanted because I'd been out of uniform for, um, I'd been out of CID for a couple of years. So that was a, a, a big blow, really. Um, mm. And I did challenge him about it. Yeah. I put to him that I knew about this individual and the organisational structure they had and he wanted to know if I was going to make a complaint um, and put a, a grievance or a fairness at work in. And my approach was to not do that, but to say to him, so how are you now going to help me achieve my ambitions? As opposed to getting into a battle, mm. um, put the onus on his toes to, to do something positive. Um, and I got a secondment um, to cover somebody's role who was going to be absent for, for six months as a detective inspector for intelligence. Um, and while I was doing that role, that's when I applied for um, Iraq and Baghdad um, and went into a role there 
the, the post I was applying for was um, as a detective inspector with a view to coming back from that in a year's time and then securing my dream job of being a DI in Middlesbrough, thinking to myself that there is no way I, they can tell me that I haven't had recent experience if I'm in a, a war-torn city as a, as a DI, yeah. that I haven't got the experience I need. So sli- slightly um, extreme, throwing my te- but that's how I throw my teddy out the cot. I always think, right, okay, how on earth can I do this better so that they can never come back to me with that argument again? There's very few people that I've interviewed where they've had this sort of moment where they've reached a brick wall, um, got cross and said, right, that's it, I'm off to Iraq. <laughs> and and, and uh, this is the most <laughs> fascinating part. Yeah, I find this part incredibly fascinating and looking forward to exploring it. Obviously, the Middle East has been the centre for a number of conflicts over the last two, three decades. Iraq, obviously the first Iraq war and then the second. Um, you're seconded to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as the Director of Training for CPAT, which is the Civilian Police Assistance Training Team. Now, um, I'm sure there are many parts of the UK that sometimes people people would describe as war zones in terms of how busy they can be for police, but certainly you put yourself right in amongst it. Tell us, I think there's just so many questions I want to ask, but first of all, family response in terms of this secondment, you're off to the Middle East to work and how do they respond and how are you dealing with those own emotions and probably slight apprehensions yourself personally? Yeah, I was, um, I'd just come out of a divorce um, and I hadn't told my family, I'd only told two people that was applying for this yeah um because i thought they'd try and put me off um and for me it was a little bit like escaping all of the dramas that were going on at home because my my ex-husband was a police officer in cleveland police and if, when you get divorced in the police everybody knows everybody your business knows about it, yeah. um yeah so it, it was a little bit of a right okay gap year do something exciting um, and just give myself some space to yeah. rediscover who I was. Um, so it was very daunting um, uh, when I was getting the training, uh, hostile environment training, etc. They they then turned around and said that I needed to be armed and have um, trained as a firearms um, officer for protection only so a glock um and i'd never even picked up a gun before apart from at the fairground so that was really <laughs> intimidating i did not want to to carry a gun um but on the training course there was five other people there and um they were all ex-military ex-firearms officers etc all all guys and i just paid 100 percent attention and the very first shot shoot that we did um all of my all of my shots were in the target area and theirs were all over the place and i thought oh my nice. gosh i can do good groupings. this yeah <laughs> it was very good groupings yes that's the word groupings yes, yeah. um so it was it was little things like this where i knew you can succeed if you're determined yeah. and you pay attention my family were, were not particularly happy about me going but it was too late 
they couldn't really do anything about it I'd, I had my um, posting sorted out um, not that I wanted to die but I also am very pragmatic and I did not want to leave clutter behind so I did my will before I went um, I had a picture put to one side that if there was going to be an obituary <laughs> they oh, could dear. use this picture you can't you can't <laughs> leave these things to chance oh. you don't want an horrible picture of yourself being put out there <laughs> oh Karen that's incredible bloody hell <laughs> so it was um, but I've I've got a real strong deep faith um, yeah. I'm not a massive churchgoer all week every week but I do have a very strong deep um, Christian faith mm. and I believed very strongly that this is what I was meant to do I had um, very strong desire to go I was offered about five different places to go um, with the foreign office but I was watching the news every week and seeing the devastation that was going on in Iraq and that we as a country were partly responsible for and I 100%. felt a need to try and help fix some mm. of that in any small way I could um, so I had a very, very strong calling to go there. So was was this position another demonstration to you personally that regardless of ethnicity or gender that you could achieve great things because you were very good? Was this a good booster for that sort of self-confidence and, and you know knowing that you could compete with others regardless of those barriers that could exist? Yes, I think so. And um, I, I guess the bits for me are that those barriers are there to be overcome. Mm. And that's what all of this taught me. Because, mm. as I said, I wanted to go out to be a, um, a DI and the, the original posting was to help set up the um, um, the national intelligence model. Yeah. Um, in Baghdad and help their create their CID hub, um, and a barrier was put in the place where that couldn't happen, um, and so I went out for the training team, and all of these things, for me, are, it was a silver lining because I really succeeded in the new role I went out to. If I'd stayed, and got the job as a DI in Middlesbrough when I first applied for it then that probably would not have um, resulted in me being an assistant chief officer. Um, I would have stayed in Middlesbrough, I'd have stayed, I may well have got to a superintendent or a chief superintendent, but I would not have had the experiences um, that I did and I went on to do and the fulfilling career that I have. So for me, it's a lot about these barriers. How do you overcome them? But also that there's a different plan out there. And if there's a different plan out there, then take a take a chance on what that plan might be and, and go with it and you never know where you're going to end up. So tell us about working in Iraq. What's it like as a place? What are the thoughts, the feelings, the smells, the atmosphere and the people? Um, hot. Very, very hot. <laughs> so the first week I was there, um, I was in Basra and um, I probably cried myself to sleep every night because it was so terrifying. Um, you you were living in what is effectively a port cabin. Mm. Um, you'd be you, that would be your room, um, and 
you'd hear the gunfire going off. You'd hear bombs going off. Um, and you couldn't communicate with anybody. Um, it was just a completely different world. So the first week I was there was really terrifying. I went up to, that was all familiarisation in Basra and then everybody else stayed in Basra and I went up to Baghdad and I was um, taken under the wing of a group of um, ex-RUC officers um, with all the the look of the Irish and they all surrounded me and supported me and made sure that I was looked after um, and um, Some of the most took care people. of me. So in absolutely in the, those first weeks if I didn't have them I'd probably have come home. They took me under their wing, they showed me the ropes um, and it was a slightly nicer environment in Baghdad um, because it wasn't in the middle of the desert. You had um, more um, modern facilities like a shower in your room um, as opposed to a shower <laughs> block that everybody had to use. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was a much nicer environment. And they did ask me, um, have you brought your ball gown because it's St. Andrew's ball um, coming up? And I thought, I've brought gym kit. G yes. Mm. I brought gym kit, jeans, and my uniform. Why on earth would I think I'm going to a ball <laughs> in the right. middle of that? I brought no heels with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they knew how to party hard. Um, so, yes, there was a ball there as well. Because um, the ambassador was there, so he would have um, various different events. And they because it was a really difficult bubble that you were working in and existing in they did like to make sure that you had um that good downtime social element as well um but the work itself i worked predominantly with the americans um in cpat and um worked directly to a general a um major general and I was working with Italians, Canadians, Australians, as well as Americans, um, and only one other Brit who was there. Um, all the other Brits were down in in um, in Basra, um, so it was mainly the American military I was with, and then there was a few um, UK military in the place I was working. It was like the headquarters for all of the training camps across um, police training camps across Iraq and the training camp in Jordan. Um, and our mission was to recruit, train, equip 135,000 police officers across the whole of Iraq. So there was a lot of logistics put in place, um, but also I was overseeing the curriculum and how we could change the curriculum from at the training schools from predominantly learning how to march and shoot to incorporating human rights into yeah. that a little mm. bit more so if they got a tip off if the iraqi police got a tip off that there was some insurgents living in a house they would execute a warrant as it were their equivalent and go to the house and just um take out 
and neutralize all of the threat and part of my piece was about to say you don't need to neutralize the threat if it's a baby in a crib mm. um and and try to get things like that into their thinking into their psyche things like domestic abuse rape um and how they treated women trying to build that into um their curriculum and i was working with the ministry of interior they they equivalent of the the home secretary um on some of this as well so it wasn't just the coalition or uk policing doing this to the iraqis it was working alongside them hand in hand about what they wanted to achieve for the longer term um future of policing so it was it was hugely fulfilling we need such training because we have not had any training like this in iraq for some time we will benefit from it we are ready. We have our old experience and now we have gained more through this training course. We are ready and we can now manage these security conditions. The significant challenges, because you talk about then trying to change almost sort of culture in the sense of how people, you know, how Iraqis treated their own women in terms of accepting them and allowing them, you know, for instance, voting, driving, all these different elements in the Middle East are some things that women don't have ability to do in terms of driving, voting, going out by themselves, you know, being seen alone. All those things are significant challenges and ultimately our culture, which has been accepted for hundreds of years in that part of the world. How how did they, how was, how were you responded to as a, as a female coming into that particular culture and telling people how things should be considered? Was that, that must have been a, an uphill battle sometimes? Um, it was, it was probably less of a battle with the Iraqis, to be honest, than it wow. was with the, both the US and the UK military. Um, really? Because I was a civilian. Wow. Yeah, okay. Um, and I was female. So I I, yeah. I suffered um, or had experienced more of those biases from those two elements. With the Iraqis, it was a lot more... Um, I was in a position of power. I had the purse strings um, to millions of dollars of investment. Mm. Um, and so they they accepted that I was there to do a job and a role. Um, so it was less um, challenging from that perspective. Um, but with the, with, I mean, because of my colouring um, and the uniform I wore, which was a blue shirt, I quite often, if you're going through the checkpoints to the US Embassy, for instance, or their compound, the Iraqi police wore pale blue shirts, very similar to to what mine yeah. was and so they would think I was an Iraqi so they'd try and push me through um, a different security gate even though I had the highest level of security pass to get through um, and this greatly upset a lot of my American colleagues who I was working closely with um, and they would try and defend me against um, some of the prejudices that were coming from elsewhere yeah. so I had a lot of support um, and a lot of really good friends that I made who I'm still in touch with today, even though it's um, what some 15 years on, yeah, 17 years, years on. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it had its ups and downs, um, but I was the longest serving female 
police officer out there at that time. Um, a couple of other female police officers, UK officers, who'd been out had done a six-month tour and I stayed for the whole 12 months. Um, I felt like I had a job to do and I needed to do it. And I we, we then went on to ISIS in recent times, etc. And things went very much downhill. But for me, I felt that the difference we made was to sow the seeds mm. about how policing could be done differently in that country. Um, and we certainly got lots of thanks from police officers from female police officers as well who we recruited yeah um who were doing a job out there in incredibly difficult circumstances um and so it was very humbling very humbling seeing their lives and how they were hopefully changing things for the better and as a result of that i was just trying to find you're the recipient of um one of the deployment medals for going to iraq is that right um, yes, I got the um, from the Foreign Office the um, Iraq Deployment Medal. Yeah. Um, so I, I was awarded that, which was fantastic. Um, and I was also um, awarded an Americ um, a medal from the Americans for outstanding civilian bravery. Um, and that was the first time that they'd awarded it to a non-US citizen um, when I when I got that. It's incredible, yeah. The Iraq Campaign Medal and then the Civilian Outstanding Bravery Medal, both in well June and July 2007. So is, is that a part of your career which is one of the most significant highlights of success for you in terms of the work you did out there? Is it something that you often reflect on? I think so, because I think it changed me as a person. Mm. Um, certainly when I came back, um, I was much more worldly-wise, but also recognize that things are not black and white even to see what you see on the mm. tv that you have to really dig into what things are like and who the people are who were living in in those environments um and iraq is not a backward country um before the war it was a very very cosmopolitan country mm. um and completely different to what i'd expected Yes, they have very rural areas where it's quite traditional, but certainly the cities were, were much more cosmopolitan. Um, their universities, their um, forensic labs, etc., had were massive. Um, and then when I came back, it, it took me some time to readjust to the normal nickels of management as an inspector. Yeah. of um i remember the i was the posting i had was um uniform inspector in one of our um bcus and in two of my front desk staff in hartlepool yes two of my front desk staff had a massive falling out and wouldn't talk to each other and <laughs> one of them went off sick and i'm like i've just come from a place where people are getting shot in the head for joining the police yeah where people are being murdered for their beliefs. And I've got two people who just can't even talk to each other. Having a tit for tat. But I had to, like, take that out mm. and deal with what the problem was in front of me. Because the problem that they were experiencing was very real to them. Do you know, it's actually um, one of so the greatest it, it challenges. It was difficult to do. 
it's one of the greatest challenges I find today, you know, even personally. You know, I deal with so many complex problems right across the world. It's, And then when my own family comes to me with simple problems that I think should just be easily solvable, my patience is one thing that I've, I've had to work on because these problems are significant to those that are going through them. It doesn't make them any less, you know, so it's, it's I, I, I certainly know where you're coming from from the angle because i have those challenges myself in terms of trying to be more patient and understand the problems and so so there's i suppose mm. coming to the point that there must have been this almost transition back into would we call it normal life as to what would be considered for you normal life and, and normal problems that people are dealing with yeah there was and i um i took a, a month off and went traveling around peru um before i, I came back just to try and like decompress and, and yeah. adjust myself accordingly. But one of the things that when I did come back, um, I felt like I didn't want to be a DI in Middlesbrough anymore. My whole outlook and ambition had changed and I'd been given some significant responsibilities when I was in Iraq mm. and I succeeded in them. And so my ambitions to be a more senior officer grew from there really um and i then um applied for promotion to chief inspector to to north yorkshire police um and was successful moving across there and that's when i enrolled myself on a, a university master's course um to do an mba because again i wanted to be that senior officer but also wanted to have that credibility that i felt was potentially lacking and it was for my own benefit nobody else had actually asked mm. me to do this or suggested I do this but it was the one the chip on the shoulder that I had that I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it um so so my career flew from there really coming back from Iraq I wanted to quickly talk about you obviously you, you get promoted to um the force control room at North Yorkshire Police from 2008 to 2009. But there's an important stint there for four months from January through to May 2008 where you were head of diversity at Cleveland Police, which I think is quite an important role because diversity means a lot to you. It means a lot to all of us now in terms of recognising that we need to do more. Policing has come on an awful long way in the last 30 years, but I don't think we, sh we can ever become complacent because it's certainly not the perfect environment. And I think we're learning that very much at the moment in terms of some of the stuff which is certainly coming to the fore. The, the, the head of diversity role for you, what were you able to do to, in, to affect change there? What, what, it was only a short stint, but you would have had exposure to some of the challenges that policing faces. Yeah, I think um, so. Some of the the work that I did there was set some really good foundations mm. about how that role and that unit could influence the rest of the organisation. I worked closely with um, some of the local colleges um, and secured funding from the government to um, get academic qualifications for all of us like second and third line managers, inspectors and chief inspectors to go through some diversity programs so that they had a, a better understanding of the Equality Act, for instance, yeah. um, how they can manage people in a in a more inclusive environment. 
So those those things, um, I just got on and, and got them done um, and didn't ask permission for these things because I didn't really have a boss either. Or I had a chief superintendent who didn't have a clue because they had such a big portfolio. Um, so it was it was the ability to create what I wanted to create, um, bringing together different strands of the Equality Act and having very clear leads for each of those strands so that we could look internally about what we were doing, look externally about how we were connecting with those particular communities and pull together some strategies and plans mm. to be able to do that. So I created a really progressive team um, and then affected change by making sure that our reach was across the whole organisation, certainly for those inspectors and chief inspectors. And that was a year-long programme that they were on, um, which they would have completed after, well after I'd left. But I, I set that in train, and I was very proud of that. So let's talk about this period of um, senior management, Detective Chief Inspector. I want to cover two areas here of your career. Protecting vulnerable persons and volume and serious crime, uh, both really important areas. Um, protecting vulnerable persons, I think, is uh, certainly an area of, of interest in terms of the safeguarding. And um, if you look at some of the investigations in the past couple of de decades, you know, Utree is probably one of the most renowned investigations where we looked at historical not historical, but that's the wrong wording, but offences involving the exploitation of young and vulnerable people who have bravely come forward to report. And, and generally the, the the offenders for those have been people that have been in positions of power and influence within certain media organisations in terms of their profiles or public profiles. Was that a, a, a position for you in terms of protecting vulnerable people and leading on investigations uh, where you're supporting people that are vulnerable? Was that an area that you wanted to go into to be able to have an impact and to be able to oversee some of the more delicate and maybe challenging investigations emotionally? It it, it, it wasn't actually. Um, I was given that to help lead um, a change programme of bringing the Vulnerable Persons Unit together as a whole mm. because at that time um, it was... Adult safeguarding was in one area, child safeguarding was in another, domestic abuse another, etc. Um, and they were dotted about yeah. all over the force, very small little cliques. Um, so the main thing I did when I got that role was to go in to, um, to bring about a wholesale change about the model. Um, so I'd, I'd had no interest in the safeguarding world in the in my previous CID career. Um, but I grew to really understand it, get to know it and have a huge amount of um, respect for the, the detectives in that in those environments. Mm. Um, so that's where it gave me my passion, was working with them and seeing the fantastic work that they were doing, but also the complexity of some of the jobs that they were dealing with um, and how I could, as a DCI, help support them to do to give them the tools to do better um, and working with partners which I'd never really done before so again all of that was a huge amount of learning for me as to how we can get partners on board and work together um, much better to affect change 
because we, we, we often overcomplicate policing in terms of forgetting that it really is a vocation which relies heavily on the communication and the partnerships with the community because the community are the eyes and ears that often come to us with information or they're the victims of crime and we rely on them to support us, to allow us to continue our investigations, to get them into court, to have su successful conviction rates. Um, what what were the methodologies in terms of when, when you're trying to police the communities and you're trying to be effective, it's important that often your police service represents the communities that it polices so that it can overcome challenges of, of culture and diversity. Was it, was it evident to you that during that period that there was more that could be done to ensure that we were recruiting people that were reflective of the communities that we were policing? Um, I think so. I think there was... Um, it goes in fits and starts. Um, whenever a chief officer has a, an idea that they want to recruit from a particular community, then there's a lot of energy put into it, mm. but that doesn't last. Um, so lots of the, lots of the work that I did outside of my day job supporting HR processes, etc., and the national work was to, to try and build in those desires right from day one to to try and ensure that we have constantly um information available to all of these different communities so we're not just reaching out to communities when we want something mm. when we want to recruit but actually we're reaching out to communities to give them information about what we're doing all the time so neighborhood policing um is is one of my passions because if you don't get that right from neighbourhood policing perspective, then you're never, you're never going to get the trust and confidence yeah. from yeah. the public because they'll see what they'll mm. see right through that you're only here because you want something, i.e., you want us to join. Um, so PCSOs, problem solving, using the SARA model, etc., and really being embedded with partners and communities right from day one and having members of the community come in as laypersons opening up for ex work experience weeks um and having that engagement constantly through the good mm. times and the bad um for me was really really important both as a chief officer in lincolnshire and when i was in north yorkshire and and durham i want to talk about another quite challenging investigation that you have led on and i suppose a a warning to our listeners that this one does involve the death of a of an unborn child and you described yourself in your investigative career as, as being dogged and determined to get to the bottom of matters and to work hard to make sure that the crown prosecution service the cps took on matters that ordinary sometimes they would just put to one side because they were seen as being too hard to be able to get across the line and one of such jobs was investigation subsequent conviction of a woman who had killed her unborn baby when it was nine months in her womb. Now, there are many investigations which could bring one to tears and, and incredibly sad. And this must be one of them in terms of the challenges that and the scars that they leave on us personally when you're, when you're involved in such a matter. Because there are two victims here, for my mind, immediately. The mother in in such a position that she's had to take this awful action and the unborn child and family members around them. How, how do you navigate such a difficult issue? Um, that, that was one of 
the investigations that still haunts me because um, we never ever recovered the the body of that little baby boy. Wow. Um, and this was one of those crimes that could have completely gone unnoticed. Mm. Um, it it was never reported because nobody had an an interest in it. There was no body who was the um the victim there was no father coming forward no other family members coming forward it came about because this woman um had um been to see her gp and um tried to get um a legal termination and so she went to an abortion clinic and they said she was too late um she was i think 24 weeks and it turned out that this woman went to several other abortion clinics and she couldn't get an abortion. Um, and she bought some pills on the internet, researched it and took those pills at a time that would produce the best opportunity for her to miscarry, which was mm. on the day of her due date. So that babe, she she had two previous children. She was married. Um, she was um, a, a professional lady, middle class professional lady. Um, she, there was no reason why she should have felt she needed to go down this road. She knew she was pregnant um, very very early on, and we were able to prove that um, she'd been having an affair, and she told the father of the child. Um, that she was pregnant when she was, I think, about six or seven weeks in. And she also told him when she was 12 weeks in that she'd had an abortion. So she could have legally um, taken a very um, legal course of action, but she didn't. Um, and there was nothing to suggest that there was anything wrong with this baby whatsoever. And this baby would have been born perfectly healthy um at nine months old and for me i was very dogged and determined in this because she'd taken a life and just mm. because there was nobody there who cared about that baby didn't say that that baby did not deserve justice and and so that is one of the reasons that um i really pushed for um the charges that we did get on her um that CPS and both my chief superintendent did not even want us to pursue because it was like, well, nobody's complaining. Um, it's not going to give you, it's, it's, it's not burglary, it's not anybody on a child protection plan. This is a middle-class family. Um, let's just give her a caution for um, concealing a birth. Um, to me, that wasn't good enough. How do you manage your own emotions through that? Because it's quite a traumatic investigation to be part of, you know, along with your colleagues. As a, as a supervisor and as a manager, you're also looking out for the welfare of your team. You know, how, how do you... What, what are you doing to make sure that people yeah. are able to get through that? Um, it was working with them and giving them the support as a team, but also I got the support from them. 
from Mad AI and the, the DS. So it wasn't a, a very big team who were on this. Um, but it was making sure that th they were as, as passionate as I was about uncovering the truth mm. and giving them the support and the space to be able to investigate in the way that they needed to um, and ensuring that we we kept at the forefront of our mind what this little boy and we didn't know he was a boy until it was it went to court we just knew it was a baby um and and she mentioned it when she was at court that he was stillborn um which we we absolutely did not believe um but it was making sure that they had the support that they knew that they'd done everything that they could to try and recover where this baby's body was um, and that we didn't leave any stone unturned because we wanted to give the justice to that to that child. Um, and after her conviction, when she was at court, um, the DI and myself did go to do a, a prison visit to see if she'd give us any further information as to where the baby was um, and she refused. And my suspicions were that she refused because if we'd recovered the baby's body, we would have been able to, to prove that the baby had not been stillborn. Wow. Um, that's a big one. There's no doubt about that. That's um, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, quite, yeah, it's a challenging one to get over that one. That's um, incredible. Um, let's, let, let's talk about now this progression from detective chief inspector right up to assistant chief constable those it's it's quite a an accelerated process it's incredibly impressive to see the speed to which you progress through the ranks but what i wanted to ask for or ask about more importantly is were there still challenges you know we're now in the era of 2013 we're not talking an awful long time ago now it, it, it's um were there still challenges in terms of the ones that you've been presented with some time ago in your early part of your career with regards to diversity your ethnicity were there still challenges there for you in your police work um probably less overt challenges um because i was a superintendent um and then chief superintendent in acc but there's there's definitely been um challenges around sexism misogyny um going through those ranks and very much so as an acc um in a in a very traditional force which was um had never had somebody of color at the chief officer rank um somebody of color who was coming in from outside of the organization there was quite a lot of challenge that I had and sexism that I had to deal with um, as an ACC. There was a, a very strong boys club um, and it, it was a single ACC position when I first went to, to Lincolnshire and there was um, a, a great deal of resistance to change and I'd been brought in with a very clear mandate about what my chief constable wanted me to deliver on. Mm. So my abilities to deliver on that needed to bring in the superintendents and chief superintendents to make some of those changes. Um, and to move it from a very command and control tasky 
type of an organisation to a more inclusive, supportive and looking at threat, harm and risk in a different way operationally. So we were delivering in a different way and very focused on neighbourhood policing, safeguarding. Um, there was a, a huge amount of resistance to change from just a handful of individuals, but they made my life very, very difficult and they... Um, they had the backing of the then deputy. So if I said, right, this is what we're going to do, they would just go and behind my back, speak to somebody else and go, oh, don't worry about that, just ignore her. That's awful. And that was my boss. Um, yeah, so it was... And you, you don't know that's happening. I only found out about that probably about two years afterwards. Um, so... There was a lot of challenge there, but I was quite stubborn and I took the challenges on um, overtly and asked to meet to do mediation with um, a couple of the key individuals um, so that we could really understand where we were, where we were coming from. Um, and they refused. They refused to do that mediation. But we're in a, you know... So it's quite... a. You, you, you know, policing is a is an organisation which relies heavily on in its militarian type approach in terms of rank and structure and and directions given. And if they're lawful directions, there's not a, there's, there's no there's no question about questioning these things. If they're made, they're made for a reason. And 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 if something goes wrong, well, then the people that came up with the decisions are held accountable for that. I I can't see a basis to which somebody could just not follow through with what they're asked to do and a reasonable direction as to kind of where the chief constable and where the ACC and, and yourself want to go with a particular policy or that those people should be again managed out of the organisation because they're clearly not wanting to go with where the organisation wants to go is that is that a fair comment? I completely agree with you <laughs> I just think myself <laughs> No argument <laughs> from me on that one. It's just, yeah. Well, there's, there's only two options. <laughs> but for some... For... You either follow what I ask you to do yeah. or you're more than happy to submit your papers and you can leave the organisation and I'll put somebody, a bum on a seat, that wants to work with me to do this job. Yeah. Or the third option is that you just get your mate to, to overrule. Um, and, and that did so... I guess I was I was at Lincolnshire for almost five years. So the first year was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, and it was only after I would not back down and said, no, we need to we need to fix this because we need to work together because I'm not going anywhere. Um, that people eventually came around the table um, and I've had tons of apologies afterwards um for people who a were aware of it and didn't stick up for me yeah but that's not good enough i hate that because it's always always after the fact that people want to apologize Mm. you know it's it's where were you at the time (laughs) yeah um at the time i this is how they've described it is that they because they didn't know me they believed some of the um, the the falsehoods that were being said about me. 
by the the couple of individuals who just did not want to be managed by a woman and a woman of colour. And we wonder why we're in the position we are today, and it's fairly evident that we haven't really come on at all. Because you know, I I said only five couple of minutes ago, you know, in thirty years things have changed, and they and uh, and it would be wrong to say that they that they haven't changed. They clearly have changed, but nowhere near the extent to where they need to be in terms of recognizing that regardless of color ethnicity or sexual orientation that you know if somebody is in a position of authority in terms of a position of rank and they make a decision the decision is for a reason and the decision is not to be questioned unless it's unlawful and then you've got lawful grounds to to question something if it jeopardizes someone's safety or it's you know completely bonkers but these are these are reasonable decisions, and you came in with a remit to change stuff at the direction of the chief constable. Is it, is it those last four years, were they enjoyable four years for you? Um, they're probably mixed. I've had some incredible um, friendships that have been developed. I've changed things, um, and I've delivered a really good job mm. um, for some of the, the areas that I was responsible for. Um, and I've had a huge amount of satisf- satisfaction for some of my national work, um, but some of the now. some of the local um, relationships, uh, it it would be unfair to say that they haven't been difficult. Let's talk about this national work because it's so important and it goes to the very heart of what we're talking about here, which is um, the establishing you establish the women of colour in policing. It's got an acronym of. WOCIP yep. network across all UK police forces and it's de- developing key uh-huh. work streams to deliver change to this underrepresented group less than 1% of women of colour in police leaving faster have less opportunity for progression and currently only have one chief we, only, we currently only have one chief officer across the country who is a woman of colour so there's, there's a couple of things that I, I've wanted to explore in recent weeks is that we've only had in the UK one previous chief constable of colour, a male, and you know we we the the former Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick, who I think is an outstanding woman and an incredible police officer, and all I ever hear is incredible things about her, um, who, who left an organisation under I believe very yucky circumstances um tell us about this establishing it, it's obviously women is an important part but importantly it's women of color in policing what do we need to do to ensure change happens and happens now um i think we need to recognize that this is um an area of deficiency um in terms of um where we are nationally we need to make sure that it's on the radar of um, all of the national plans that we need to increase representation mm. of women of colour. We've got the race action plan, which breaks down every single race there is, but it doesn't break down the gender. So it doesn't see where the pockets of success are or the pockets of failure are in terms of the, the promotion of the ranks, we need to recognise that women of colour are leaving at a higher rate than um, than um, yeah. white women. They're leaving the organisation at a higher rate than um, than black men. 
And if we don't understand the data because we're not looking at it and we're not capturing it, then we're never going to be able to put plans in place to actually address it. Um, but can I ask, so Karen, just one question. When, when there, people leave the police, and, and let's, 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 let's use this very important one of women in colour, when women of colour leave policing, do they get an exit interview to understand why they're leaving? Because that would seem to me to be the most yeah. important thing to implement so that we can improve by understanding what has been the catalyst to you making this decision to leave. Because if you lose somebody who's got 10 years of policing behind them and you lose somebody that not only has 10 years of policing experience or 15, whatever the case may be, but equally they come from a background which is so important in 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 being a leader for the next generations to follow if you don't understand why that person's leaving i don't know how you can ever infect change because you don't know what the catalyst is mm -hmm. yeah i completely agree um not all forces do exit interviews um they'll do even my old force lincolnshire if you retire you get the opportunity to speak to a ch to the chief but if you just leave there is no offer for that um, so some of our policies, HR policies, etc., are a bit screwed up. Um, there's no retention um, strategy in lots of forces. There's a lot of recruitment strategy. But what are they doing about retention and progression? Um, if they're not there, then people won't be supported to either stay and succeed and fulfil their potential. Um, so the culture is one of the areas that absolutely needs to be addressed. Um, and that's the culture of senior leaders to recognise that this is an issue. Um, we've we've changed the culture with women in chief officer um, roles. So there's roughly 250 chief officers from assistant chief, deputy and chiefs up and down the country. Yeah. Um, and with something like 40% are women chief constables now we've got a massive base that's, there. A, good, that's a good success but story would you once would i you agree? left is that a good success story i absolutely it's a great success story and i think it um it is therefore that the people coming up behind mm. the women coming up behind and achieving senior ranks etc it's fantastic but nobody's recognizing that women of color are not on the same league because white women are supporting white women. Yeah. White men are supporting white women. Because they know them. They're in their circles. Um, and they don't always see that there is a this deficiency there in terms of their approach to, to women of colour. Um, we've got, out of the 250, once I left in December, we've got one woman of colour who's a commander in the Met. Um, I was talking to, we've only got about half a dozen chief superintendents who are females of colour and some of them are coming up to retirement. There's only one or two of them who are interested in going for a chief officer role. Um, I have spoken previously to, um, to, to somebody who was told it's not their turn to be supported to go for a chief officer role, not regardless of whether they've got the competency or the aptitude to go for it, but that there's a couple of other people in in the queue in front of them who both happen to be white men. 
Um, so if we're not going to do anything different, we're not going to accelerate the opportunity for people to, to go into the arena to see, to achieve the successes, then how can we ever get any sort of parity in there? Um, so we put together um, um, the Women of Colour in Policing. We launched that in December. I was the national lead for it. And um, it's been part of a portfolio I've been working on for a, for a number of years now. And we've got a huge amount of energy behind it. But I do hear um, on the grapevine rumours that, oh, why are they getting so much attention? Why are they getting so much um, um, airtime? What about my group? And it's like, why, why can't you just be happy for the success that this is... Mm the direction that this is going in um as opposed to wanting to put it down because you think it's it's detracting from your own agenda what's the um is it <clears throat> i spoke to um uh karen daybar in, in cambridgeshire police another incredibly successful woman in policing and of color importantly um who equally had her challenges throughout her career um, but spoke about the importance of nurturing talent that there are so many women and women of colour that have got so much to offer policing. And as you say, it's a great success story that out of 250 executive ranks, 40% of those are occupied in female representation, which is incredible. And I think we do have to celebrate the victories when they come along. But equally, we're still failing on terms of ethnicity and, 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 and ultimately having senior officers which are representative of the communities that we police is it is it more is it is it is it more about is it more than just nurturing talent because it would appear that we are nurturing talent because obviously those figures would indicate that we are making sure women are progressing but equally i think it's about ensuring that we've got broad diverse representation yeah i think you you're absolutely right there ollie we do need to um nurture the talent and but we need to recognize where the gaps mm. are and then pro progressively nurture that talent in those areas of 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 um absence not just everybody not just all women um and and I'm not saying that you don't do that because once you set your stall out to to nurture and mentor and make things better you will nurture and mentor everybody because that's just naturally how it comes about mm -hmm. but actually really plucking somebody up and saying i think you've got um the potential which is exactly what happened to me in durham my chief constable when i went for my superintendent's board he plucked me up afterwards and said um, I think you've got the potential to be a chief officer and I want to help you get there. So it gave me lots of experiences, lots of um, challenges. It wasn't an easy journey, but he really stretched me. Um, and other women of colour need that. They need somebody to tap them on the shoulder, pick them up and go, right, what can I do? Or this is what I'm going to do to help you. Because mm. they won't come along and ask for it. No. It What's, just doesn't happen. You've 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 exited policing as of the fourteenth of December last year. What 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 is your goal now? I suppose I've got two questions. 
I often ask people, and I and I use the Met as a bit of a as a scenario because it's one that's in a bit of a, which is in a bit of strife at the moment, as we say in Australia. The word strife, bit of trouble. If Sir Mark Rowley was to pick up the phone to you today and say, Kieran, Kieran, I want you to come forward and I want you to champion this women in policing and in particularly coloured representation amongst our ranks across the Met and across the UK. Is that something that you would take up or have, or is your career in policing finished now and you're going to move on to, to new things and how are you going to champion these causes from outside of policing? I don't think I can ever say never um, to any future opportunities in policing. Um, I do feel as if um, I haven't completely finished with policing yet yeah well i get that sense um, from you i so get I, it may I, be something i get the sense you have unfinished business yes yeah <laughs> i don't feel i've achieved that that what i needed to achieve yeah um so it may well be that there's opportunities in the future i don't know um i've but regardless um i'm still be um, a real vocal advocate for both for policing but also for diversity within policing um, and it's a being that role model is thrust upon you when you're the only one um, when I was the only one as a PC with eight years service it's thrust upon you it's not a, a responsibility that you can choose no. to pick up or put down um, you, mm. you've got to own it um, and it's given me a fantastic career and I would hope that other people can see that and to see that they too can come in and have a fantastic career, including all of the ups and downs, because it's the ups mm. and downs that make you who you are. So don't expect it to be mm. plain sailing and very smooth, but that you've got to, to take the, the, the bumps in the road as well, because that will help you understand and make it better for the people who come behind you and hopefully that's what I've done and I will continue um, to champion that and do that going forward. Do you mentor people outside of policing that are still there wanting to progress up? Is there a couple of people that you're supporting in the background? Yes yeah um, I've I've still got lots of phone calls and mentoring sessions in the diary um, for, for people across the country people who I've never physically met oh, wow. but social media brings yeah, you together yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I've got people in lots of different forces, um, who I've been able to support that with. Um, drawing, rounding out now, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think are the greatest challenges for policing over the next five, five years? I think the trust and confidence in policing is, um, the biggest issue. And I know all public services have, um, have, challenge with confidence but for policing we've got to be much more transparent and much more open about what we're doing and why and how and not be afraid to take on the difficult decisions of getting people getting rid of people who should not be in policing and making it very open about what we're doing I've had somebody contact me this week to talk about um somebody who's on bail for a, a sexual offence, a police officer, but they haven't been suspended. Um, and nobody in that organisation is telling them why they Bloody haven't been hell. suspended. So that confidence internally, as well as the confidence externally, will, um, will, will set the standard about what we want policing to be. 
um, the the abuse, the sexual offences, um, the misconduct. It all needs to be rooted out and it can only be rooted out if you've got the confidence of both the public and the confidence of your workforce to be able to, to manage that. It's interesting because I was a bit surprised the other day, I'm digressing here, but I was surprised if I, if I live in Kent, as an example, and I work within the boundaries and I work for the Met and I get involved in an incident in Kent and they put something on the system. It's not something that automatically gets flagged up within the Met, in, as an example. So they don't actually know anything's occurred. So it's not like there's there's, there's this lack of communication between between services in terms of officer conduct, which I would imagine would be the first thing that anybody would want to have in, implemented, was if somebody is there's an interaction with a police officer off duty, then their employer, being the police, should should know about it first and foremost, so they can make an assessment as to whether that person is still a fit and proper person to to withstand the role of constable but that's another subject in itself yes i agree we could we could go down a whole rabbit hole yeah. of talking about that's that. a complicated <laughs> one that one anyway listen uh, the last hour and 48 minutes approaching two hours i said an hour and a half look we're nearly at two hours it's been absolutely incredible and if there's anybody that should be looked up to as somebody that has achieved so many great things as not only a woman in policing but a woman of color in policing it's yourself and and what a an incredible career that you've had and, and and I got the sense throughout this interview that I don't think we've seen the last of Karen Wilson just yet in terms of what she can bring to the table in policing and the representations which are so fundamentally important in the success of what is uh, a job that I have so much love for and want, it to, want to see it in better places I think like we all do because it is the bedrock of communities in terms of keeping everybody safe you know, and uh, supporting the communities when they need us most because um, something yeah, it's just so vitally important. So, on behalf of myself personally and, and my little team on this podcast, Protect and Serve, thank you ever so much for your <coughs> for your service. Uh, we really do greatly appreciate. It. Congratulations on being the recipient of the Queen's Police Medal. Uh, again, something which is incredible, and the the, the ten other well includes the nine other awards that you have received and medals for bravery and other service medals are are quite incredible so thank you ever so much and thank you for coming on the show this morning to tell me a little bit about your life career and the challenges that you've faced uh, during the 30 years of policing ollie thank you very much for reaching out and having me um i've really enjoyed it so um and i hope whoever does listen to this i don't know what your audience reaches but i hope i've um i've been able to to give a little bit of inspiration for people to achieve their goals as well and their dreams thanks very much ollie thanks. just love my job absolutely love being a cop and um as i've gone through the ranks in policing over the years what i have found is that i'm really curious and hungry to go on to the next rank or the next job or the next experience And that's what's propelled me into being an Assistant Chief Constable. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.